We are joined tonight by three scholars of Judaism, and uh, this will be a program focused on the impossibly vast question, uh, what is Judaism, how did it originate, what changes has it gone through, uh, what are the divisions within it these days, and what ultimate meaning does it have for those who are its communicants and those who look on with some interest. You can't really do that in an hour, particularly when punctuated by six commercial breaks, but we will make an attempt. My guests are Daniel C. Matt, who um, was for a number of years professor of Jewish spirituality at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, and is the translator of a major new work that has just appeared, the first two volumes of a contemplated 12, I believe, uh, uh, translation of the Zohar, which is the great and central text in Kabbalah, in mystical Judaism. Also with us are Arthur Green, who is professor of Jewish thought <coughs> at Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts, and uh, is the author of a large and very significant introduction to this volume, which I've been reading just today. And a third guest is a local figure of great uh, significance and eminence in Jewish circles, uh, Rabbi Yechiel Pupko, who is the Judaic scholar at the Jewish Federation and director of the Pritzker Center for Jewish Education for the Chicago Jewish Community Centers. Gentlemen, uh, to start with something simple, when you think of the five more or less great world religions, one could list six, seven, or eight as well, but uh, if you think of the five uh, major ones in terms of their origin, in terms of their, um, their longevity, uh, Christianity, Islam, and Buddhism are quite different from Hinduism and Judaism in many particulars, but in one uh, that I have in mind. We know just about how and where and when Christianity began. We know the story, uh, even though there can be argument about who the historical Jesus really was and what he really said and so on. Uh, Islam, it's clear. Uh, though some revisionists argue that there wasn't really a, a historical Muhammad, but that seems to be quite an unlikely judgment. Buddhism clearly begins with a Gautama, uh, Gautama Siddhartha, who becomes the Buddha. Um, to be sure, in Judaism, we know that Moses is there at the beginning of the story, but he's a very uh, hazy figure, unless you're orthodox and take uh, the book of Genesis as absolute uh, literal truth, uh, incapable of uh, any ambiguity. Uh, and for Hinduism, that's lost in the mists of a, a difficult uh, and very complex antiquity. Am I right in my first assertion? Uh, and I'll put that to Arthur Green. Well, I would say Hinduism is really a religion of mythic origins, and it doesn't claim to be historical. Judaism certainly sees itself as a historical faith, and it viewed its own ancestors, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their wives, and Moses, as historical figures. That his, the historicity of those accounts is, of course, questioned now, and I would say they belong to the national saga of the Jews. That's the way to think of it. And that national saga is the paradigm for all of Jewish faith experience afterwards, whether or not we can actually trace these to specific historical figures. We know when Judaism originated. We know the area. The details are really Well, when did Judaism saga. of the sort that we recognize as Judaism, and all four of us were raised as uh, within Judaism, when did that Judaism begin? You might say what, what we call Judaism t today is more a product of, of rabbinic Judaism, Certainly the roots are there in, in the Bible, in Genesis and Exodus. Abraham is seen as the one who discovered the one God. But in terms of uh, a regimen of Jewish law, of Jewish practice, that really grows out of uh, the 
the the cataclysm of the destruction of the second temple. So the Romans bring on rabbinic Judaism in a way. You could say the Romans helped to give violent birth yeah. to what becomes contemporary Judaism. And we want to go to uh, the first century uh, A.D. or uh, C.E. C.E. C.B.E. Uh, um, no, B.C.E. or C.E. I get those always confused. C.E. is common era, which right. is the Jewish way of avoiding saying uh, uh, A.D. Uh, Anno Domini. Uh, but first, let me, let, let's go back a thousand years. What were the Jews believing? What were they practicing? What was Judaism in its forerunner, uh, uh, forerunner model? What was it like, say, in a thousand B.C.? Well, until now, you've been talking with two scholars, and though they are great believers and great men of the spirit, I'm not a scholar. I am just a believer. And not only am I a believer, I'm a, funda I'm a believer in fundamentals. And so what I have to say, my colleagues will probably disagree with. They've already disagreed with. <laughs> As I believe that the Bible, uh, the Pentateuch, is the revealed word of God uh -huh. to Moses. And I furthermore believe that... I saw that you doing a surprise double take when I said, we know that that's all essentially yes, clouded yes. in myth. Yes. But, we, but, you, but you don't know that. No, I don't know that. Nor do I believe that the Torah is history. The, the purpose of, of God's book is not to write a history book. Mm -hmm. It is to uh, teach uh, right and wrong and certain great truths. Uh, and I also believe that along with the written law comes the oral law. Uh, my good friend Daniel uh, has a different conception, and he calls that rabbinic Judaism. But nevertheless, he and I work on this Zohar project together. But a thousand uh, years before the Common Era, what, uh, that's, Temple Judaism is more or less organized and functioning by then, is it not? The Temple is just about to be built, you could say. I mean, Solomon... We're back to the time of Solomon. Right, so David and Solomon is around uh, 1,950 BCE that the Temple comes into being. Um, in let's, some... zoom, let's zoom ahead to 800 sure. uh, uh, BCE. But right. then the Temple's there, no one's... Uh, the Babylonians haven't come to destroy it yet. That comes about 200 years later. What are they doing in the temple? What are they doing right, around there, Jerusalem? There is, there is a temple cult. I mean, you could say uh -huh. the, the, the central, the worship of God centers around the temple and around sacrifices. There are prayers, but those prayers are really part of the temple service. You don't have widespread individual synagogues. That's hundreds hundreds of years later. So it's a, it's a temple sacrificial cult. The you don't have rabbis, even. Right, there's no one called rabbi at that point. It's priests and Levites and commoners, mm -hmm. but everyone makes, you know, everyone look, makes or looks forward to making pilgrimage to the, to the temple in Jerusalem three times a year. It's interesting that we still have those three castes, don't we? Uh, in a traditional synagogue, uh, that uh, the Cohen's, determines the... who comes up to the Torah for the for the at the Torah service every Saturday. Explain that. What are the three separate? The Kohen is the priest. The Levites were their assistants and yeah. uh, would would sing and play musical instruments in the temple, and the rest of the of the commoners were the the Israelites. And anybody named Cohen or Khan or Kagan has a good chance of going back to that to that line. Is a Cohen, right? Or may well be. Is claiming to be one. Claiming <laughs> there, there were lots of 
changes in Jewish names as people came up the boat in Ellis Island, remember, yeah. and some of those names don't go back more than a generation. Or, or when they bought their family names in uh, the Rhineland. Yes, that too. Uh, in, fort- in the 15th century. The history of Jewish family there, names is very yeah. complicated and can't yeah. always be relied upon yeah. as a guide in itself. So what changes? Uh, obviously, historical experience changes. The Babylonian uh, assault and the Babylonian captivity is one great first tragic instance in the history of the Jewish people. What did that do to the religion? The Bible begins when, with a simple uh, incident. Rebecca wants to know what is happening when the two babes are wrestling in her womb, Jacob and Esau, and so she goes lidrosh, to inquire of God. Mm-hmm. And so, in the Hebrew Bible, if you want to know, you go to inquire of God. When they return, after the Babylonian exile, once again, the same word, lidrosh, to inquire is found, but this time, Ezra, the bookman, does not inquire of God. He inquires of God's book. And from that moment on, when prophecy ends, Jews become the people who inquire of God by inquiring of the book of God. What do we know about the, uh, the Pentateuch, about the five books of Moses? When were they composed and by whom? Though uh, Yechiel would insist that God sort of guided the men who wrote it down. Not sort of. Did, indeed. Well, I would say who were those men? Biblical scholars are, are pretty much agreed that the, the book came into being gradually. There were probably oral traditions and then written documents that were edited and compiled. So what we call the Torah, or the five books of Moses, probably took its form sometime uh, in the 6th century BCE, between, let's say, between the, the 6th and 5th centuries BCE. But, but in a sense, you know, the, 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 the Torah became the central text, and I think Yechiel's point of, of Midrash, searching for the meaning of Torah, that really is the key to all la- later Jewish creativity, expanding the meaning of the Torah. You take, for example, the line, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, mm-hmm. which is cited so often, and even in contemporary political context, it's cited. It seems the original literal meaning was simply that, if I gouge out your eye, my eye should be gouged out too. That was even seen as a, a great step forward, almost a democratic kind of legislation. Just not right that every that would apply to everyone. But the rabbis could not accept that that was the real meaning, the real meaning of the text. They claimed that what the Torah meant was monetary compensation. If I gouge out your eye, then I have to pay certain expenses for medical expenses, for the humiliation suffered, for lack of employment activities. It's not that just they said the Torah said this, but we're now changing it. They made a more radical claim. They claimed that the Torah's intent originally was simply monetary compensation. So I, I cite that because it's a great example of applying the the liberty of, of Midrash, of interpretation to the biblical text, and that really gave birth to, to Jewish creativity. How does Temple Judaism end? I suppose the destruction of the Second Temple What's the year? 70? 70 CE. 70 mm-hmm. CE uh, is obviously uh, the precipitating event. Or, But there were rabbinic uh, movements and rabbinic developments already underway before the destruction of the Second Temple. Were there yes, not? that's right. Rabbinic Judaism was beginning to grow in the first in a century or so before the destruction of the Temple. It, it descends from what is commonly called Phariseeism. Phariseeism. Phariseeism and Rabbinic Judaism are essentially the same movement. Yeah. What happens after the destruction of the Second Temple, however, is that all of the types of leaders who had existed in biblical times, the priest, the prophet, and the king, either disappear or become vestigial in their powers. There's no more prophecy. The rabbis 
no longer recognized the legitimacy of prophecy. There is no Israelite monarchy, so the king is gone. And the priesthood essentially is vestigial. There is no temple left for the priest to officiate. So that the priesthood becomes a kind of, as we said, an honorific in the synagogue. That leaves room for a new type of leader to emerge, who is the rabbi who reads scripture and has his authority by virtue of being scholar and interpreter of the text. And when the emperor Titus decrees, get those Jews out of that country. Uh, let's spread them around. They're dangerous uh, when they're concentrated there. And thus the diaspora really begins. Lots of the Jews had already emigrated, though. There were large communities in Rome and throughout the Roman mm -hmm. Empire already before the destruction of the sure. temple. It's not quite the case that Titus exiled the Jews. I would say the temple's destruction meant the diaspora communities became more important, but there remained a very strong Jewish community in the land of Israel down to the 8th or 9th century. And the diaspora communities eventually wandered away from Judaism. Most of them became converted to Christianity. Or later to Islam, because there are there is the Eastern Diaspora as well. Yes, although remember that the Jewish communities of the Near East, of the, some of the Arab lands, date back to ancient times. The Iraqi oh. Jewish community, for example, which was dispersed only after 1948, goes all the way back, as far as we know, to uh, to the pre-Christian centuries. And we have two forms of the Talmud, and one of them is called the Babylonian, Babylonian. Talmud. Written in Babylon. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Yechiel, let's... Well, uh, I was about to say, let's turn to the... Uh, the works and ways of the rabbinic Judaism, but I realize that one must, and this is a good rabbinic precept, take the law and all its requirements very seriously, and my law is that I'm uh, due, indeed I'm somewhat overdue, for a first stop for some commercials. Then after those we'll go directly to the rabbinic tradition and what came from it, and how it is still evolving will be uh, something under discussion before we finish tonight. Directly back to Daniel, Matt, Arthur Green, and Yechiel Pupko after this. With a quick reintroduction of our guests, uh, Daniel Matt is the former professor of Jewish spirituality at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. Former because he's now engaged in full-time translation of the Zohar. We will come to that major undertaking uh, shortly in our discussion. Arthur Green is professor of Jewish thought at Brandeis University. He's both a, an historian of religion and a theologian. And Rabbi Yechiel Pupko is uh, the Judaic scholar at the Jewish Federation of Chicago. And Yechiel, I was coming back to you on this. How can one quickly characterize what rabbinic Judaism became and what it meant to the large dispersed community that it sustained? Let's do that by just taking a quick look at its several literatures. Uh, rabbinic literature includes uh, codes, like the Mishnah, which are the constitution of Israel after it loses national sovereignty. Rabbinic literature contains what is popularly called Midrash, which is commentary uh, of a mythic poetic nature upon the narrative texts of the Hebrew Bible. There is mystical rabbinic literature, uh, most especially uh, the Book of Creation and the contemplation of the throne or chariot of God. And of course, uh, the rabbinic period gives us the prayer book, uh, which is with us to this very day. There's one book you didn't mention, the Torah. The, all of these rabbinic literatures are commentary upon that one book. All are commentary. Yes. Um, and the Zohar, which is the centerpiece of our discussion tonight, is what exactly? There are five types of commentary on the Hebrew Bible. They are law, philosophy, prayer, 
Midrash lore and mysticism, and the Zohar is one of the three canonical works of Judaism, the Torah, the Talmud, and the Zohar. And we enjoy great English translations of the Torah and the Talmud, and now, thanks to Daniel Matt, we have the same thing with the Pritzker edition of the Zohar. But here's an interesting thing. We don't know who wrote, unless it was God guiding everybody, as Yechiel has uh, asserted, who wrote the Torah. We don't really know. Well, the Talmud reports the sayings and the interpretations of hundreds and hundreds of significant rabbis, so we know who they were. Uh, but there's a. it is contended, and I will turn instantly, of course, to... Um, Daniel Matt on this, it is contended that basically the Zohar was the work of one man, and a well, man who lived in Spain uh, in, the in the 13th, 13th century. century. Yeah, this is still somewhat of a mystery too, but uh, the, the man you're speaking of is Moses de Leon from Leon in northwestern Spain, mm -hmm. not Lyon in France, but Leon, a district in northwestern Spain. He was the same uh, place where Ponce de Leon came. Exactly, yes, the same, uh, the same, from the same city. Moses de Leon, Ponce de Leon, of course, is a few hundred years later. Moses de Leon, a Jewish mystic in Spain, what we would call a Kabbalist. At this point, Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical tradition, is a relatively new movement within Judaism. Certainly it has its roots in rabbinic mysticism and in biblical spirituality. But as a phenomenon within Judaism, it really arises the end of the 12th century in Provence and then spills over the Pyrenees into Spain. It's in Spain in the 13th century that Kabbalah crystallizes, and the Zohar is the major text of the Kabbalah, the masterpiece of the Kabbalah. Now, how was the Zohar written? It's, as I say, it's still something of a mystery. Moses de Leon is certainly the man who published the Zohar, of course, using that, that uh, expression hundreds of years before the printing press. He made the Zohar available. He passed it around. He probably was the composer, the editor, even the author of the Zohar. But he made a fantastic claim. He claimed that these teachings go back more than a millennium earlier to the second century to a great rabbinic sage named Rabbi Shimon, a student of Rabbi Akiva. So here is Moses de Leon composing the Zohar in 13th century Spain, perhaps in a circle of other Kabbalists, but presenting it as ancient wisdom. Now that's the, the question is really, was he doing this trying to make it acceptable, trying to make it popular, or did he really believe that he was conveying ancient teachings? And there may be something to both, both of those explanations. Now, there's a clarification that really is needed. I, in my time, have taught a course in the psychology of religion. Uh, and one of the main texts, of course, that one would use doing that in a great books-oriented place like the University of Chicago is, um, is William James's Varieties of Religious Experience. Um, one of the most exciting portions of that book is his treatment of mysticism. Mm. To William James, and in common Western use generally, mysticism has usually meant uh, the experience, whether it is sought through disciplines or whether it comes upon you as a great and overwhelming surprise, the experience of a revelation of the oneness of all, the pantheistic universality of God and our belonging to or with God, and the elation that follows upon that, that realization. Uh, that's the mystical experience. But the mysticism we're talking about here is not quite the same thing, is it? It is a, sort of a magical approach to the secret meanings that are found, uh, the decoding. It's almost like kind of spiritual cryptography. You can decode 
ancient texts, uh, sacred texts, and in them find new meanings, sometimes through numerology, sometimes through wordplay, which then reveal in a way that isn't otherwise readily available to uh, ordinary people, reveal esoteric discoveries that further clarify the nature of God and the nature of reality and, for that matter, how we can gain uh, a kind of comp a deeper relation to God which will serve God and serve ourselves equally well. Am I distorting this terribly? Well, you're right in terms of some of the methods used. All those tools are used, the language games, the numerologies, the switching around of letters. But we understand the Zohar to be a mystical text. And that means that there is precisely the kind of mystical experience that James is talking about underlying this text. The Kabbalists believe that all reality ultimately is rooted in something which they can mm -hmm. only name as Ein Sof, the endless, or that which is without limits. And that really is that underlying pervasive oneness of all being. The great question of mystics all mm. over the world, in every tradition, is if all is one as the mystic experiences it, where did the many come from? And the Zohar sets about answering that question. How did multiplicity arrive out of, arise out of that oneness? It answers it by a series of gradations of subtle processes that take place within that one, and then it seeks to find hints at that process throughout the Torah. And all those techniques and number games and name games you refer to have to do with how you find that message in the text of a Torah, which on the surface doesn't seem to be talking about that at all. But the essential underlying experience is the mystical experience, and one of the great things that Matt's translation has done, and one of the things that modern Zohar scholarship has just begun in the last decade or two to show us, is how to read through the Zohar text to discover the experiential world that lies within it. Uh, and so, what we have then is a text which reveals ultimate reality, if you know how to read it, but that text it was done a long time ago, and it's been, and of course, it was not done in the English language, not even done in Hebrew, but rather in the older language, Aramaic. Right, Aramaic. Let, let me give you one example of what I think uh, Art is, is talking about. There's a verse uh, in, uh, in, in the Bible, in Deuteronomy. You should know that God is the God, and heaven is above, and the earth beneath. En od, there is no one else. Or in other words, there's no other God. But the mystics read that to, to mean there is nothing else. God is God above and below. There is nothing else. So they come to that. And James we are and ourselves emanations. We are, of that. we are part of that yeah. oneness. So there's a oneness. There's a divine oneness of which we are a part. That universal mystical message is found through reading the text in a in a mystical perspective, or to say that God is one. Simply the the line in Deuteronomy: "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." Does I that mean this is the one God, or does it mean God is the oneness that encompasses everything? depends how you read it. I introduced the program tonight before you guys came in from the green room, green room with uh, 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 Shema Yisrael uh -huh. Adashem Eloheinu Adashem Echod um, and uh, that's of course James, to return to him for a moment argues that that is the ultimate truth that lies behind all of the great religions and that is what commends the mystical enterprise That's what's so exciting about studying mysticism that you find yeah. it here and there in different different expressions and different languages yeah. and different metaphors, but that underlying truth. Now, I will not ask, uh, I will not ask Daniel Matt to evaluate himself 
But I think I can ask Arthur Green and Yael Pupko to say something about this fellow sitting next to me and the work that he has launched upon. Well, if you can imagine that a person whose native tongue is Russian, German, or French not being able to read William Shakespeare, that's what it's been like for the Zohar. This is one of the three canonical works of Judaism. Its last translation into English was done in the English of Britain in the 1930s, which is sort of like having a physics book written without taking into account Einstein and everything that followed. And what Daniel Matt has done is quite simply this. If Rabbi Moses de Leon uh, received the tradition of Rabbi Shimon of the second century, we have in Daniel Matt literally the voice of Moses de Leon speaking to us now in the beginning of the 21st century. Uh, to, to translate a text is to destroy it. We all know that. And yet Daniel Matt has managed not just to translate the Zohar, but to transform English into the soulful voice of it. Your listeners are in the midst of a historic experience. This is one of the greatest undertakings in Jewish scholarship in nearly a century. There is yet another uh, person that should be mentioned, and another group of people, I suppose, and that is uh, instantly signaled by the full title of this book. It is the Zohar Pritzker edition. Uh, this Zohar uh, project has been undertaken by the Pritzker Family Philanthropic Fund and uh, brought to the fund by Margot Pritzker, a serious student of uh, Torah uh, and rabbinic literature who uh, immediately recognized uh, some eight, nine, or ten years ago that the older British translation of the Zohar uh, was simply uh, not uh, up to date and not as poetic and compelling as it ought to be. And then one day we picked up the phone and called Arthur Green and said, who can translate it? And Arthur said, I have a long list, Daniel Matt. Uh -huh. <laughs> and Daniel Matt said, are you crazy? It can't be done. And then he went and experimented for a month. And here we are now with the first two volumes. Why did you recommend Daniel Matt as the only one capable of doing it, Arthur Green? Yes, I've known Daniel for many years. Uh, and we were both students of the same teacher, Professor Alexander Altman at Brandeis, was the first one to teach Kabbalah in a university context anywhere in North America. He really brought this whole field of studies to these shores in the 1950s and 1960s. But Matt had already translated a volume from the Zohar in this wonderful series published by the Paulist Press called The Classics of Western Spirituality. Um, Matt had translated a, a collection of passages from the Zohar with commentary, and I saw there that he was able somehow to enter into the Zohar's poetic muse. He just had a, an attunement to the language of the Zohar and the rhythms of the Zohar text that was truly astonishing. So when it came to talking about translating the whole Zohar, there was absolutely no one else to even think about for this project. Some commercials again, then let us indeed enter his, uh, the Zohar through, uh, through Daniel's poetic muse. We'll do some pill around the Zohar directly after we pause for this. And directly back to Arthur Green, uh, Yehiel Pupko, and to Daniel C. Matt, the translator of the Zohar in this very important new edition, the first two volumes of which have appeared. It is to be 12 finally, is it? We're projecting 10 to 12 volumes, and two have now appeared. 
let's go into it and let's get a, more of a feel Correct. for the Zohar and for what you've done with it. Correct. Let me say a word about the Zohar. The Zohar, you could say, is two things at once. On the one hand, it's a kind of mystical novel, tracing rabbis who are wandering through the hills of Galilee, sharing secrets of Torah. They run into strange characters on the road, a little child who amazes them with wisdom, a beggar who enriches them with precious teachings, a cantankerous old donkey driver who seems to be a total idiot, but turns out to be a, a sage in disguise. So it's a, it's a kind of mystical novel, several hundred years before Don Quixote, uh, just a couple, about a hundred years before Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. So think in those you know, medieval and early modern terms. On the one hand, it's a mystical novel, but much more prominently, it's a commentary on the Bible. Now, this is a work of mysticism. It is the major work of Kabbalah, but it's not chapter one, God, chapter two, Torah, chapter three, Israel. It simply is written as a running commentary on the five books of Moses, beginning with Genesis 1-1, and moving through the narratives and the laws of the Bible, giving a spiritual perspective. So I'd like to read two passages. One is fairly straightforward, although it requires a little bit of unpacking. And the second is more demanding and difficult, but has beautiful poetic imagery. By the way, before you get to them, uh, you are translating not from the Hebrew, but from the Aramaic. Right. Explain to those of our listeners who are confused by that what Aramaic was and is uh -huh. and how it relates to Hebrew. Okay, Aramaic is a Semitic language like Hebrew and like Arabic. You could say Arabic and Hebrew and Aramaic all go back to some hypothetical early mm -hmm. proto-Semitic. Uh, Aramaic is fairly close to Hebrew. Sometimes it'll be a Hebrew word with an ah, an aleph added. For example, many of you know the word Abba. Abba is actually Aramaic. The Hebrew word is av, father. Abba, with that ah sound tacked on the end, is, is Aramaic. So Aramaic and Hebrew share many, many roots and many words, but uh, it has a more lyrical sound. Uh, at this point in Spain in the 13th century, hardly any Jews in the world spoke Aramaic. But Aramaic was known to the more learned Jews because the Talmud is written in Aramaic. Before you go into a passage and elaborate upon it, would you read it in Aramaic just so we can enjoy the sound of it? I think what I'll do is I'll read the first passage just in English. The second I happen to have the Aramaic here, so we'll wait a few minutes All for right, the Aramaic. Fine. We'll start with something easy. This is a parable from the Zohar, and I like to say that it's the whole Zohar uh, in a nutshell. Hmm. And I'll read it and maybe let uh, Art Green and Ichiel Pupko reflect on on uh, some of its possible meanings. There was a man who lived in the mountains. He knew nothing about those who lived in the city. He sowed wheat and ate the kernels raw. One day he entered the city. They offered him good bread. The man asked, what's this for? They replied, it's bread to eat. He ate and it tasted very good. He asked, what's it made of? They answered, wheat. Later, they offered him thick loaves kneaded with oil. He tasted them and asked, what are these made of? They said, wheat. Finally, they offered him royal pastry kneaded with honey and oil. He asked, what are these made of? They answered, wheat. He said, surely I am the master of all of these, since I eat the essence of all of these, wheat. Because of that view, he knew nothing of the delights of the world, which were lost on him. So it is with one who grasps the principle, but is unaware of all those delectable delights deriving, diverging from that principle. Are we being urged 
not to be too simple? Or are we being urged to go back to the kernel of pure wheat? That's really a good question. You don't know until the end whether this guy is the hero or the villain, I think. Yeah. And it's strange because usually in mysticism, the goal is to get to the essence. And that's what this person does. But you could say he has so much essence that he he misses out on all the possible things that essence... He misses all the joyful derivatives is what... That's the surface meaning that's being right. asserted. Right. And is it the intended final meaning? I think it's talking on one level about, you know, enjoying the delights of the world. And Judaism has always put a strong emphasis on not rejecting mm -hmm. life here in the world, on celebrating God's creation. Yeah. But this is yeah. also a parable about how to approach the Bible. You could say it's a 13th century critique of fundamentalism. Don't be satisfied with a literal simple meaning. See how that can expand into all possible meanings. And this person can't appreciate what the text could turn into, all the possible imaginative interpretations. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts of my friends, colleagues here? Yes, I think richness and diversity of interpretation is what the Zohar is about. The fascinating thing is that this mystical reading doesn't give you a single answer. Often the Zohar goes from one mystical interpretation of, this, of a verse to another and then another, as though mystical reading is a kind of method rather than an answer to a question. It's a way of seeing things. And the Zohar likes the idea, is fascinated by the idea that several things can be true at once and several witnesses can be found in the same verse. So all these delectable delights, as, as Matt so, uh, so with so much, such nice alliterative uh, uh, sensibility translates these, uh, this phrase, these are all to be found by unpacking Scripture more and more. And the Kabbalists in that era even talked about multiple levels of Scripture being true, a simple meaning, an allegorical meaning, a midrashic meaning, and finally, the wealth of mystical meanings the Zohar could find. The Zohar is filled with this search for diversity of meaning, even within a single word or a single verse of Scripture. And you find that in this kind of parable. More. Great. Uh, let me take your suggestion and read a couple lines in Aramaic. Yes. Uh, I'll read the Aramaic first and then introduce the English to mm -hmm. give the readers Good. a bit of context. Beresh harmanuta demalka galef gilufe bitihiru ila'a Otsina de Cardinuta, Nefek, Gostim distimu meresha de ensof, Kutra begulma, Neitz beizka, Lachavar, Vola ukam, Vola sumak, Vola yarok, Vola gvan klal, Karmeded meshicha, Avergavnin la anhara, Lego bego botsina, Nefek hadnaviu, Dimine its tava ugavnin latata. Steam go steaming de Raza de Ensof. I caught the Ensof in there twice. Good. Ensof is the name for the ultimate reality, yeah. the ultimate divine reality. Mm -hmm. Literally, there is no end. This is from a particularly striking, you might say almost shocking, interpretation of the Zohar. Here the Zohar is offering its mystical interpretation of the opening words of Genesis, which, of course, we all were taught to mean, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But the Zohar does something very strange here. It turns God from the subject of the sentence into the object. It's no longer in the beginning God created, but in the beginning the infinite created God. Mm -hmm. In other words, 
perhaps what the Zohar means is what, what we think of as God, that's already a secondary level. So Jehovah isn't the origin. Jehovah originated. Here it happens to use the word Elohim rather than Jehovah yeah. or yud heh vav -Hey. But the Zohar would make a similar claim about yud heh vav -Hey. Even yud heh vav -Hey doesn't capture the full, ineffable reality of God. Only this phrase, Ein Sof, the infinite, can do justice to Isn't that. there something in um, the uh, general tradition of um, the many secret names of God? Sure. There are, there are many names, 70 names. Or 70 a, is a the number, different, yeah. different totals are, appear in Kabbalistic literature. There, I think what that, what that is really saying is that there's no way to do justice to the, to the infinite range of, of divine reality. God is infinite. Of course, people need to put a, a name onto God. But the Kabbalistic critique here is that whatever name you supply should not be seen as, as being fully adequate. God is ultimately nameless. One of my favorite names in Kabbalah for God is the secret of the possible. It's a name for the divine reality. Another is nothingness by which the Kabbalists don't mean nothing, they really mean no thing. God is the energy that animates all things, but can't be encapsulated in any one thing or image. Surely there must have been a struggle, and the struggle may persist to this day. I'm just guessing, and I look to you for immediate confirmation or disconfirmation. A struggle between those who uh, are Kabbalistic in orientation and look for all kinds of extra mystical meaning and mystical revelation through the word games through the numerological games through the uh, the many other methods brought to Kabbalah as an interpretive art between people who do that on the one hand and those who as uh, Yechiel uh, asserted earlier in our conversation those who believe uh, this that is Talmud certainly uh, or rather Torah is the word of God given by God and uh, that's all we know and all we need to know we don't have to dig out other meanings or impose and project other meanings onto the words of God well, let me try and distill that in simple language and then I think um, I Arthur, thought I was putting it in simple language yes <laughs> and then I think that Arthur can really develop it there is a great tension between those uh, who want to know the mind of God by studying the law of God and those who want direct experience of God. Mm -hmm. Or to put it another way, one could, in a, in a reduced kind of way, classify all Jewish uh, thought or experience into two general categories. Those who see God as absolutely near and imminent and, the sub and, the, and containing the possibility of experience, which is, of course, the mystic who seeks to know God through experience. And on the other hand, those who come out of the great legal, rational traditionals of Jewish law and Jewish philosophy for whom God is the, transcendent. What are the Hebrew names of this? These Nagdemas? Well, that's later on at the end of. But, but it's the same struggle. Yes, it's the same struggle. Mm -hmm. What are those? What are those two terms? The terms are Hasidim, yeah. literally pious followers of uh, Hasidic masters, and Mitnagdim, those Mitnagdim. that th those that oppose them. Yeah, and that is a struggle that persists to this day. As uh, and the one side is represented by the Hasidic movements, the great Hasidic movements, uh, which came over from Europe and which flourish in some of the cities in this country, including uh, in this city, in Chicago, the Lubavitch Hasidim, at least. Correct. Yes, I would put it a little differently, just 
maybe adding something to what Yechiel says, I would say the question, the Kabbalists were also believers in the revelation, of course. The Torah was revealed to them too. The question is, what did God reveal in the Torah? Is the Torah a book about God's will, what God wants you to do, what God's law is, or does the Torah somehow reveal God's essence, God himself? The Kabbalists believed that the Torah was a book that revealed God. And then you had to discover how to find God in the book because the nature of God's inner life, the true self of God, was presented to you in the Torah if you knew how to read between the lines and find it. That was the adventure that the Kabbalists set out on. And something we haven't even yet referred to, though it's very important, and we will talk about it, I think, after some coming commercials, is the um, erotic quality of Kabbalah and the doctrine of Shekinah, which is terribly important and becomes even more important for those who inherit of the Zohar and Kabbalistic tradition a few centuries later back in uh, Israel, particularly uh, Isaac Loria and the others in the city of Sfag. All of that to be further disclosed after we pause for these words. And in this rather rushed overview of the history of Judaism, we return to conversation with Arthur Green, professor of Jewish thought at Brandeis University, uh, Rabbi Yechiel Pupko, Judaic scholar at the Jewish Federation of Chicago, Daniel C. Matt, former professor of Jewish spirituality at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, and now working full-time on the continuing efforts to translate the Zohar, the first two volumes of that new translation, Zohar, the Pritzker edition, having just recently been published by, I hadn't said this before, Stanford University Press. Um, let's um, go forward. Uh, a very interesting time in Jewish history, approaching modernity, but still some pretty strange things happen, is the 16th and 17th century back in Israel and in the larger diaspora community of Europe. And a central figure there is Isaac Luria. Let's say something about him. Right. Well, let's uh, link this back to the Zohar. The Zohar was composed in Spain toward the end of the 13th century. In 1492, the Jews were expelled from Spain. And although that was a great catastrophe, you could say one of its uh, positive uh, side effects was the spreading of Kabbalah throughout the wider Jewish world. The Spanish exiles, the Jewish exiles who left Spain, took with them many of the cultural um, creations of Spanish Jewry, and, and one of the greatest was, of course, the Kabbalah and the Zohar. Many Jews uh, left Spain and made it across North Africa. Many went to the areas of the Ottoman Empire, including... Palestine, which was then under Ottoman control, and in Safed, or Tzfat as it's known in Hebrew, in the beautiful Galilean mountain town of, of Tzfat, or Safed, uh, there was a community there and uh, a circle of Kabbalistic followers, of Kabbalists, and it was there that Isaac Luria, he actually lived there only for about two and a half years, became a very prominent teacher of Kabbalah. His Kabbalah was really... Uh, his own reading of the Zohar. And really we could say that all of Kabbalah is based centrally on the Zohar. So Luria read the Zohar in a certain way and offered his own myth, you might say, his myth of creation and of exile, even saying that in some sense God was in exile. Mm -hmm. God's exile reflecting the exile of the Jewish people. Arthur Green. Yes, that community in Tzvat developed, I should say, because Tzvat is just adjacent to the grave of Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, that second century scholar who was the 
supposed author of the Zohar, believed in the Middle Ages to be the author of the Zohar, people like Luria and his teacher and colleague Cordovero went to Tzfat because they wanted to be near the grave of Rabbi Shimon. Luria actually believed that if you went to the grave and, and bowed down at the grave in certain ways, you could commune with the spirit of the saint who was buried there. Now, what's the doctrine? that was very important. What, what's the doctrine that they develop as a kind of variation on the Zohar itself? Well, Luria's teaching is pretty complex, but basically what he says is that uh, there are divine sparks scattered throughout the world. God has sent us splintered into millions of divine sparks that are now trapped in all material existence. The spiritual task is to identify these sparks and to raise them back to their divine source. So life becomes an adventure in which one is challenged to uncover and recover the fractured uh, reality of God and to bring about what's called tikkun or repair. In other words, the Messiah will come through the active spiritual work of common Jews, of common human beings. And what is Shechina? Shechina is uh, really one of the most radical innovations of the Kabbalah. The word is not invented by the Kabbalists. The word really means the divine presence. The root shachan means to dwell. So shechina means the indwelling presence of God, that God dwells throughout the world. That's taught very prominently by, by the rabbis. Many, many passages in rabbinic literature refer to shechina. Yeah, so is shechina the, the divine spark? The, the divine presence. The divine presence. What's new in Kabbalah, is in, at least what's new in, in emphasis in Kabbalah, is, is insisting that shechina is the feminine half of God. In other words, God is not just a patriarchal divinity. We've all grown up to, uh, we were all grown up to, you know, and taught about Father in heaven, King, Judge, Ruler, Warrior. Those masculine depictions of God are now balanced by the feminine half of God, Shechina. The goal of Judaism, according to Kabbalah, is to unite the masculine and the feminine, not only on the human plane by finding a sexual partner, but on the divine plane. One is supposed to unite these two halves of God. How? By performing mitzvot, by performing the commandments of the Torah. In other words, by living ethically and spiritually, one unites these two halves of God and actually brings about a divine union, a divine marriage. I would say one actualizes the divine potential in the world. But this also bears, doesn't it, directly upon actual human eroticism and Very its practice. Much so. One of the ways to unite the divine couple is for a human couple to unite. It's almost as if human sexual union uh, enables the divine couple to unite. And that, that erotic element in Kabbalah is probably part of its success. Remember that the Song of Songs was very much revered by the Kabbalists. Already in the second mm -hmm. century, Rabbi Akiba had said that all of Scripture is holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. And the idea that the mystery of the relationship with God could be compared to the mystery, mysterious love of man and woman was something that both the synagogue and the church carried with them through the Middle Ages. And this was a very, the Song of Songs was a very important inspiration to the whole world of the Kabbalists. Even the descriptions of the, of the Zohar itself, the wanderings of these Kabbalists often take place in gardens, mysterious gardens, and you kind of feel the 
perfumes of the Song of Songs, the, 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 the perfumed gardens that the Song of Songs mm -hmm. talks about wafting through the pages of the Zohar. Mm -hmm. The Song of Songs is dealt with on countless pages in the Zohar. It's one of the most commonly quoted parts of Scripture. And I think that has a great deal to do with this erotic presence. Yehiel is a native, or at least is a long-term resident of this city. Uh, did you ever know a man who was a friend of mine, he died a good 10 or 12 years ago, Harry Burroughs? No, I didn't. You know who he was? No, I don't. Well, he used to be heard on WFMT. He was an artist and an art critic. He did art criticism routinely, a very colorful uh, Renaissance type, larger than life, full of joy, joie de vivre, so to speak. He once said, indeed on this program, he said, uh, that the greatest of all art forms is theology. Uh, that our imaginings about uh, the transcendent and our ways of connecting to it through imagery of our own invention, uh, though we, uh, that invention stirs us to deeper feelings which somehow have intrinsic validity as part of the pursuit of a connection with God. But still, it's all invention. It's all artistry, he says. And you find it every place. You find it in all religions. And he, of Jewish background himself, though certainly a secular Jew, but interested in these matters, said, in Judaism, you find it particularly in the Zohar. So he had been reading it. I don't know. I, w I wish how That's much I wish George he could. Steiner says that atheist societies produce no great art because they have yeah. no God with whom to contend. Yeah. Remember, that was very much intensified in Judaism because there was such a taboo against the plastic arts, especially when yes. it came to anything regarding religion. You were not allowed to picture God. Therefore, all of that artistic impulse went into the words, went into the world mm -hmm. of, of writing and thinking about terms for God. And you have to understand the Zohar in some ways as the great work of medieval Jewish iconography. These are icons, but they're icons only in language, and you distill them in your imagination and picture them, but they were never allowed to put them into stained glass or paintings. But the Zohar and Lurianic uh, Kabbalah lead to a great disaster, and we need now to point to that disaster. Uh, who's going to tell the story of Shabti Tzvi? Shabtai Tzvi was a Kabbalist who lived in Smyrna on the Turkish coast in the 17th century. And he was a young man who had some uh, experience in Kabbalah and some delusions. He hooked up with a would-be prophet, a man named Nathan, in the now notorious city of Gaza, uh, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the coast of the land of Israel. And Shabtai Tzvi became convinced that he was the Messiah. He had been sent to save Israel. In 1666, he was proclaimed Messiah by Nathan in great ceremony, and he was supposedly to lead the Jews back to the land of Israel. At that point, the vizier of the sultan heard that the trouble was going on among the Jews. They were talking about rebelling, leaving, uh, t establishing a Jewish kingdom. Shabtzatzvi was called into the uh, palace and was given the choice of either donning the sultan, donning the turban, signifying that he had become a Muslim, or being beheaded. He came out wearing the turban and therefore, to my mind, missing one of the great opportunities in the history of Western religion. Because had Shabtai Tzvi defied the Sultan, he forever would have been considered another Jesus, another martyr, mm -hmm. another one killed by, killed by the enemy and somehow a savior. But doesn't one have to point out that for the few years before that final moment, there was great messianic excitement throughout the world of Jewry, and that was throughout Europe, and it even reached, from what I've heard, a few very early uh, 
Jewish residents of this country mm. uh, and of uh, what became Canada. Mm. Uh, but certainly it reached England, it reached throughout all of Western as well as Eastern Europe. Mm. And I have read, particularly in the account given by Gershon Sholem, I guess, in his book on Shabti Tzvi, uh, doesn't he say that better than half of all of world Jewry was convinced that the Messiah had come? I, I don't remember that percentage, but it was widespread. It was it was a phenomenon, and you can imagine the 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 devastation people felt at the conversion. What's amazing is that many people still may, try to maintain belief in Shabbat. You think there there still are the Sabbatean? There still there there still are underground Sabbatean yeah, groups called the, the, the Dunma in New York and in London and and elsewhere, awaiting his second coming. Right. Well, we hear that about various messianic figures, and yeah. some believe that Shabbat uh, still exists in some realm. But I should ask you a little bit of elaboration on that. In what way was all of this Kabbalistic? I mean, what elements did he borrow from Zohar, from Luria? Well, remember, Luria had taught that it was our task to, to uplift the sparks. Mm -hmm. So even after the conversion, if not Shabtai, then his, his prophet Nathan and others explained the conversion in Lurianic terms, in Kabbalistic terms. It's as if Shabtai Tzvi had to go down to the depths of non-Jewish religion and uplift the divine sparks that were trapped there. So all of a sudden, his conversion took on a cosmic significance. And as, as you said before, theology is a great art form, and theologians mm -hmm. can can explain almost anything. Uh, some commercials are due again at this moment. Uh, a, a next, the next chapter is the reaction of devastated European Jewry to the Sabbatean catastrophe. A reaction which has a great deal to do with those people I mentioned earlier, the uh, Hasidim in Chicago, uh, as it happens, the Lubavitch Hasidim, who are to be found very active in this town and uh, very prominent in Jewish life here, as they are in New York. Uh, Hasidism, as a reaction to Sabbateism or Sabbateanism, uh, is, I think, our next step in the recounting of this tale. Though I should say that within 15 minutes we will be going to the phones. We'll have at least half an hour for phone calls. And we're opening the lines right now, in case you want to get in there and don't mind waiting just a bit. The number, 591-7200, 591-7200, and 312, the area code, if you're calling long distance. If you're listening at a great long distance and listening over the Internet, elsewhere in the world or on either coast, and you want to reach us, the best way would be via email. And the email address is extension720 at tribune.com. We return directly after these words. And I was saying a moment ago that there's yet another chapter in the history of Judaism that we really ought to cover. And that has to do with the rise of Hasidism. What does it have to do with the uh, catastrophe of the false messiah? Hasidism arose in Eastern Europe in the 18th century as a popular religious movement, a popularization of Kabbalah, making it accessible to the ordinary Jew and building Kabbalah into a mass movement for the first time. There is some connection between Hasidism and Sabbatianism. It's a little bit difficult to know exactly what it was. Some of the ideas of Sabbatianism, the idea, for example, of going down into the depths to redeem the sparks of light, that idea is found in Hasidism as well, although the Hasidim were always very careful to stay within the province of Jewish law and never to transgress. So they were taking some of the very exciting energy that had been there in the Messianic movement and redeeming it from its Messianic shell so that it could be uh, used in another generation. But Martin Buber, in his book on Hasidism, offers a still simpler hypothesis, that there was such total devastation in the Jewish world uh, that community was shattered, and the only way to bring it together again was by a kind of uh, Judaism which asserted 
emotional ties to God and emotional ties within the community and try to emphasize joy instead of uh, instead of, uh, instead careful of asceticism, instead asceticism of and, and uh, intellectual pursuits uh, going deep into a holy writ. That uh, a simple assertion of our our being bound to God and bound to one another was the way to restore community in the face of uh, the destruction of community uh, in that great messianic excitement and that great messianic failure. There is some truth to that, though I think the destruction of the communities by messianism is overstated. I don't think the communities really fell apart. The destruction of the communities happened much more because of the pogroms, because of the terrible yeah. uh, pogroms and uh, and uh, campaigns against the Jews, the butchering of Jews that happened in 1648 That's in Eastern Europe. Chelnicky. The Chmelnitsky pogroms. I know how to say that word. I would say that those are the old explanations for the origin of Hasidism. Today, I think that people are much more interested in the particular religious personalities that Hasidism created. The Baal Shem Tov, the first central figure, and several of the disciples around him were truly remarkable religious individuals. In another generation, they might have almost been considered prophets. Yeah. And it was these people and the kind of charisma of their teaching and the intense newness of some of their religious ideas that I think really gave Hasidism Now, there's a figure we should say some words about as well, the Baal Shem Tov, called the Besht, is, is that right? That's right. Besht is an acronym for yeah. Baal Shem Tov, which means the master of the good name. Of course, a Baal Shem means a, a, a kind of mystical healer, mystical, magical healer, somebody who knew how to write amulets, names of God, but also how to give out herbal medicines and how to find folk healing recipes. He was a kind of healer, but he was a healer. He was the good one among the healers. He was the one who really cared not only about healing uh, individual clients, so to speak, but healing the Jewish people as a whole. He saw himself as a kind of redeemer of Jews and savior of Jews from their enemies. And that's how he turned the profession of Baal Shem into really a paradigm for a new kind of spiritual teacher. Now, when I uh, mentioned Buber's notion about the re reconstitution of community, what I left out and should have mentioned, is, of course, that or community now got organized around uh, those central quasi-rabbinic figures. That's right, charismatic individuals who became the righteous ones, or the tzaddikim, yeah. so-called, of the Hasidic movement. They began, many of them and their were, dynasties persist in the first down days, to this time. Were, in, indeed, in the first days, they were truly charismatic. What happened, of course, is that leadership became dynastic. And you know the great-grandson of a charismatic figure is not necessarily charismatic himself. He learns the externals by family tradition, but sometimes the heart goes out of it. And that's also part of the tradition of Hasidism, how it waned in the later generations in some families because the charisma was difficult to pass on. What portion of, uh, uh, of Orthodox Jewry is Hasidic these days? Um, that's hard to say. Um, orthodoxy in um, Israel is about 20-25% of the population. Here in the United States, it's about 8 or 9% of the population. But uh, despite World War II, uh, World War II and the Germans murdered the Yiddish language, one of the things they almost murdered was Hasidism, and yet several Hasidic courts did manage to come to the United States and revitalize themselves. There is, of course, Satmar, which is Yiddish for Satumare. They are the St. Mary's Hasidim. Uh, they come from the city of St. Mary's in Romania. They managed to reconstitute themselves in Williamsburg, as did the Lubavitcher, those who came from Bells, and uh, those who came from Gur. And they still have great vitality as... These four communities in the United as, States number yeah. in the tens of thousands. 
Mm-hmm. We come almost to the present time. Um, so I'll put to all of you this basic question. What's the census? What's the profile of uh, different variants of or different types of Judaism, including secular, non-Jewish, uh, non-Judaic Jews? Well, how are we distributed? How many of us are left in the world, and what, are, what is our religious uh, well, there are something like 12 million Jews in the world today. The two major centers, of course, are North America and Israel. Um, Israel, which wanted to be, which claimed to be the center of the Jewish people and the spiritual center as well as the population center, will soon become home to more than half of world Jewry if population trends continue. And uh, that's a very significant piece of Jewish history today. But Jews are quite divided in terms of what kind of religious affiliation and what kind of understanding of the tradition we have. There are denominations, four major denominations among North American Jews, but many Jews don't quite fit those denominational lines at all. You say four. Most people would say there are three. What, there, what's the fourth one? The fourth is Reconstructionism, mind? which is somewhat smaller. With which you've been identified, important. I believe. I one time was very much involved with Reconstructionism, yes, and that is a small movement numerically, but very influential. Founded in by terms Kaplan, of was that his name? Mordecai Kaplan. Mordecai Kaplan. And many people say the majority of American Jews, while not identified by the term, consider themselves, if they understood Reconstructionism, really would define themselves that way, because it's a movement that sees Judaism as a culture and civilization, and not only as a religious faith. I think one, one remarkable phenomenon is the revival of interest in Kabbalah mm-hmm. and the Zohar among these various branches of Judaism. You find it remarkably, especially among Reform Jews, perhaps because they had rejected the mystical so totally 100, 200 years ago, and now they're recovering that, that lost treasure. But you find it uh, really you know, widely distributed among the Jewish community and, more remarkably, among the non-Jewish community. But wha- rather, uh, rather debased in its content, I would say. There are some very popular Kabbalistic works, pseudo-Kabbalistic works, uh, written by various American uh, practitioners, supposedly, which... Uh, have about them the cloying uh, uh, odor of um, what am I? What's the general term used for uh, that sort of religiosity, which uh, hastily acquired and comfortably worn stuff like that? Yeah, it's certainly certainly it's diluted. New age. Uh-huh. That's the term I was le- I, w- I was right. groping for. There's kind of a new age version of Kabbalah, which uh, strikes me as rather unattractive. And rather easy, too easy. Certainly it's diluted, and and there's inevitably a a kind of, you know, cheapening that goes on here. But I think, you know, it still does attest to to a a deep interest and need among people for for spirituality, and often outside the synagogue, outside the organized structures Mm -hmm. of the Jewish community and of, of any religious or church community. And we approach the time for another batch of commercials, and time to go to the telephones. 591-7200 is the number. If you want to pose a question or offer a thought or a comment, by all means, give us a ring right now. We'll be on to the phones in just a few minutes after the impending commercials. 591-7200. If you're going to call us, get your call in right now, uh, if you would be so kind, and we'll get to you after we pause for those commercials. But before we pause for those commercials, what's the important question about contemporary Judaism that I haven't asked and should have asked? Yes, you want to know about the future. You want to know whether the process of revitalization is strong enough to combat the ongoing forces of assimilation. That's the great battle in Jewish life today. 
What's the answer to that question? Let's wait till after the commercial. <laughs> All right. We'll get to it right after we pause for this. And we will go directly back to Daniel Matt, Arthur Green, and Rabbi Yechiel Pupko. And to your telephone calls, 591-7200. After I once again make clear that the book that is the centerpiece in our discussion tonight is the full translation of the Zohar, the first two volumes having appeared, the Zohar Pritzker edition, uh, translated and with commentary by Daniel C. Matt, indeed also with a very interesting introductory chapter by Arthur Green. That volume, which is very handsomely produced as well, uh, is just now recently published by, uh, by Stanford University Press. Uh, something is coming in the Tribune, uh, I gather, I guess the Sunday after next. Is that right? right. Uh, an article by my good friend Ron Grossman, who is often on this program, in fact. He is doing a story about all of this. About the book, about the, how the, the project and how I, how I work on it. He spent a mm -hmm. whole day with me in Berkeley at my study, and I look forward to seeing what he does. He'll do, he'll do wonderfully well with it, you can be sure of that. And that will be in the Sunday magazine February on February 22nd. 591-7200 is our number. Now's the time to get your calls in. Here is the first. Hello, you're on the air. Oh, thank you. Um, before I, I make my comment and question, I just want to give an appreciation to Arthur Green. When I began my uh, undergraduate studies in Jewish, um, in Jewish history over 20 years ago, it was, uh, it was your uh, biography of Nachman of Bratislav that convinced me that one could study Jewish uh, mysticism and the personalities of Jewish mysticism in a, a serious way, but also with an appreciation from the heart without getting really goofy about it. And one of the things I see right now in, in among um, uh, people who are interested in Jewish mysticism is a lot of goofiness. Uh, I think there are courses being taught on Kabbalah everywhere except, uh, you know, auto mechanics. Schools. Do you agree with me, ma'am, that, that it partakes of that new age kind of idiocy? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. And um, I've noticed there are a lot of courses on Jewish mysticism being taught by people, Jews and non-Jews, uh, in like yoga schools, yeah. and, you know, academies of Eastern thought. People who, they, they can't read Hebrew. They've never read, um, even in English, the, the, you know, the, the entire uh, you know, texts of, of Jewish mysticism, but they feel qualified to teach it, which is kind of ridiculous in the way I see it, because you were supposed to be really anchored in terms of being married and, and being of a certain age before you could study, study Kabbalah. And now everybody from Madonna to, um, you know, the guy down the block feels that they can be studying Kabbalah and, and kind of be an ex, being uh, experts at it. But my, my question is... Uh, there seem, you know, people who are studying seriously or not seriously Eastern thought believe that there really is, uh, you know, room for dialogue and correspondence between Kabbalah and, um, you know, and Hindu mysticism, uh, and certainly within, within Buddhism. Are there people who are seriously studying this and not just airheads? Yes, there are some people. Yeah. Uh, thank you for uh, remembering my book on Rabbi Nachman. There are some people, especially among my students, a couple of the people who have done doctoral work with me, are now doing comparative work between particularly Jewish mysticism and Buddhist mysticism, and I mm -hmm. think that is an area of a future growth and a very interesting possibility 
for a serious uh, level of dialogue between those two faiths, which, of course, have no historical connection to one another and therefore no burden of historical anger against one another that so many religions have. There is uh, there's much to be learned, I think, about both traditions from some comparative studies of methods of mystical attainment and so on. There's some interesting things to be said there. I would argue, do, uh, correct me if you think I'm way off on this, that the Hindu-Buddhist tradition, and those are variants of the same general orientation, I think, uh, is quite comparable to uh, to Jewish mysticism in the assertion that there is a godhead, perhaps shattered, perhaps dispersed, uh, but that we all carry a spark of it and an element of it, and it, that is to be recovered uh, and elaborated and brought to fruition through spiritual exercise or through devotion. That is an idea which I think is quite common, particularly to Buddhism and uh, to this kind of Judaism, to Kabbalistic Judaism. Of course, those traditions are so vast, and there are so many figures within them and different kinds of religious phenomena within Hinduism itself. It's very hard to pinpoint it. Yeah. Let me say this, though. The Eastern teachers have not been afraid to talk about techniques, even physical techniques, of attaining supernatural states or mystical states of mind. Yoga positions, for example, standing on the head for a long time, obviously causes blood rush to the, br rush to the brain, and that has something to do with the change of consciousness. We Westerners, Kabbalists, Christian mystics, others, have been much more hesitant to admit that there is anything physical about the attainment of mystical states. We I, seem to need them to be a gift of God. And don't forget uh, Sufis whirling around. That's right. That's right. Sufis whirling around. Whereas Jewish and Christian mystics generally tend more to insist that these states are revelation or gifts of God rather than something that comes from some sort of natural, even physical activity. Our thanks to the caller. 591-7200 is the number. Uh, if you want to reach us, move quickly. We've got a few lines available. For a while they were not, but now we've cleared a few, so you can get through if you call quickly on 591-7200. If you want to reach us via email, the email address, extension 720, as one word, extension 720, at tribune.com. And you are on the air. Good evening. Yes, good evening. Hi, my name is Milton Ertfarb. I've been listening this evening from Highland Park, New Jersey, and uh Got a question for Professor Matt. Could you tell us if you've got any relationship with a uh, rabbi from New Jersey, Rabbi Herschel Matt, and what kind of influence did he have on uh, on your life if uh, you are in fact related to him? Yes, I'm. I'm really uh, surprised that you made that connection. Uh, my father was Herschel Matt. Uh, he was really, really one of the, I would say, genuinely spiritual rabbis and. And uh, certainly my attraction to Kabbalah is in large part due to uh, the gift of my growing up as his son. Well, I, I just want to thank you and tell you that it's been a fascinating program. And uh, why don't you just move on to the next question? Thank you and good night. Thank we you. thank you, sir. That apparently is an Internet listener. 5917200 is the number. And uh, let me read you uh, something which has come in from one of our listeners via email. I claim to be Christian. But I ask this question simply as a way of understanding Judaism better, though he hasn't quite learned how to spell Judaism. It's, he's got to spell J-U-D-I-S-M. All the same, why do Jews and Judaism not consider Jesus the Messiah? Was there some prophecy he did not fulfill? This has nothing to do with fulfilling or not fulfilling prophecies, although the uh, Hebrew Bible prophecies uh, 
for a so-called end of days, meaning an era of peace, justice, and truth, have clearly not yet been fulfilled. Um, Judaism, uh, the Jewish people rejected Jesus as the Messiah for a variety of reasons, not the least of which uh, is that Judaism could not accept the notion that God became incarnate uh, in the flesh of a human being. Um, and let's leave it simply at that. Um, however, since we've touched upon Jesus, there is a question that is, that is much in the air, though it isn't necessarily directly related to what we've been talking about tonight, but you're all certainly fully aware of it. The fuss over the forthcoming film by, what's his name? Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson, uh, a film dealing directly with the crucifixion, which many uh, representatives of organized uh, Jewish community, if not of organized Judaism, have objected to, those who've seen it. I think the ADL people have been rather bothered by it. Um, is it not, I'm really wondering just a bit, still, relations between Jews and Christians is a great and eternal question, isn't it? Is it not inevitable that any representation uh, of the crucifixion is going to disturb Jews? If it is true to uh, one or the other of the four uh, Gospels in which Jews are blamed for the for uh, Jesus' death. You have to remember that the Gospels are highly polemical texts. They were written in the period after the destruction of the Temple, when there was bitterness in the early Christian communities that more Jews didn't accept their message. They essentially turned to the communities outside the land of Israel and then through Paul primarily to non-Jews because the Jewish communities did not accept their message. They were angry and disappointed that didn't happen and therefore they turned in their anger and blamed the Jews for the terrible deed that had been done, which of course we know Jews had no authority to do and was carried out by the Romans. So naturally there is an anti-Judaism that's there in the Gospels. I had a wonderful conversation about this with James Carroll. A Roman Catholic wrote a terrific book called The Sword of Constantine about two years ago about the history of Christian anti-Semitism. Carroll says anti-Semitism goes right back to the Gospels. And I said to him, in that case, would you like to amend the Gospels? Would you like to take those offensive passages out? And he said, no, I want them there so I can preach against them. I thought that was a very good line. I want them there so I can preach against them. So that's about what we have to say. If that film is there, it will be there so we can preach. I haven't seen the film yet, but if it's offensive, it will be there so we can preach against it. And so that fair-minded Christians can also stand up and preach against it. That may turn out to be worthwhile in the end. You know, talking about Christianity and Judaism, I have uh, no objection to Christianity. Some of my best friends are Christians. Indeed, we do a lot on Christian religion and Christian history on this program. In fact, we're going to be doing it uh, doing that again this coming Thursday. Uh, an author has done a major book on uh, what he calls the radicals in American Protestantism across the history of the last 200 years or so. And we'll be discussing sort of the American style of Protestantism. But there is one thing in Christianity that I confess does offend me, and it uh, disguises itself as Judaism. They call themselves Messianic Christians. I've been bothered and bugged by them a few times. Uh, they maintain, as you know, as you well know, uh, the forms, the rituals, the uh, styling of Judaism uh, while practicing Christianity. And you can catch them sometimes on television doing what is supposedly a terribly Jewish presentation. They sing little Hebrew songs uh, and uh, they, uh, uh, they try to sound like, uh, like Jewish grandfathers or something of the sort. And it's a disguised form 
of Christianity designed to bring and to pull Jews in by persuading them that the messianic expectation which Judaism uh, provides was really completely filled and fulfilled by Jesus a long time ago. That's a very legitimate uh, assertion. may or may not be true, but it's well, they have every right to make that assertion, but it would be nice if they didn't do it disguised as Jews. They do have every right to make that assertion. I would say the Catholic Church and many of the mainline Protestant churches have in the past several decades given up the mission to the Jews, realizing the Jews have an ongoing relationship with the same God whom they worship. And it would behoove some other Christians to do that too. There are plenty of unchurched and needy spiritual mm -hmm. seekers in this world who should be the object of their missionary efforts. We, um, who have so much been victims of Christianity over the centuries of a very difficult relationship, do not need to be, um, uh, to be objects now of Christian missions. Though people uh, of that sort sometimes are in a real dilemma. Uh, I've had a few friends who are, in fact, believing serious evangelical Christians. One of them is uh, a theologian, and he, has, and he often bothers me by saying, I'm praying for your conversion. And I say, stop doing that. You know, it's not going to happen. He says, I must do that because I'm convinced that unless you convert, you and I will not share heaven together. Uh, and uh, it's my love for you that requires that uh, I go on praying for you people. Uh, what is one to do with that? The wisest thing I ever heard said about the subject was said by a Zen monk yeah. who got up at a meeting of Christians and others who were discussing the subject and said, in the simple one-line wisdom of Zen tradition, for a Christian to say Christ is the only God is like a man who says, my wife is the only woman. Mm -hmm. He then sat down and ended the discourse. And uh, that's the good final comment on the subject. I may be in one marriage and know that that's fulfilling for me, but I'm glad to know that other people have good marriages as well. A last stop for some commercials, then right back to the phones, and we'll be with you after these words. And in the remaining time, we'll stay with the phones. A number of calls waiting. We'll try to process them quickly, but adequately and accurately. And you are on the air. Good um, evening. Uncle Milty, thank you. I'm out of pay phone, so I may have to pop quarters, but nonetheless... Uh, the future of you won't have time to pop quarters. The future of Judaism, as I see it from personal experience, lies in uh, Hasidism and its manner of teaching Kabbalah, where you have young rabbis who are learning the ancient tradition, save for not being the age of 40 and having a family, but when they're in uh, yeshiva, they are learning the depths of Kabbalah, and when they come out, they teach Kabbalah, to the ability of the persons listening, they do not come out with the depths and the yeah. the, the hidden secrets. You are you are of, of Lubavitch, are you? I am friend of Lubavitch, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, that's a strong assertion of your commitment, and we're glad to have heard it, and we're not going to quarrel with it. Uh, we respect it. Five nine one seven two double zero, the number. You are next on the air. Good evening. Hi, my name is Menachem Cohen, and I'm a rabbi here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's a very exciting time around the country, um, in Israel, and even here in Chicago, to be Jewish, given what, what's happening with things like Jewish renewal and the neo-Hasidic movement. There was a neo-Hasidic conference in New York last year. I know Arthur was at. And I think there's a lot of people coming from other traditions. I studied with Buddhist traditions coming into Judaism, finding the esoteric in it. And maybe they don't know enough Hebrew now, but they're coming in to learn, and people are very excited. Right. Yes, that's certainly the case, and 
the connection between these two calls is interesting, the Hasidic community and the neo-Hasidic community. They are both readings of the mystical tradition, both readings even of the same Hasidic masters, and yet very different readings and taking the message of those uh, of those teachings in different directions. The question in my mind is, can there be some contact someday between these two communities? It's not one of rivalry, but one of learning from each other, and that we'll have to see. In my experience, I have contact with both communities, at least here in Chicago and across the country. Well, good. That's nice yeah. to know. And what are the points of connection or the points of agreement? Between um, Hasidism and Neo-Hasidism? Yeah. I mean, they both, we both study, both groups will study the same teachers. So what, what's Neo we, about Neo-Hasidism? The idea of Neo-Hasidism is that the message of Hasidism can apply to Jews and others who don't live the traditional life of the Hasidic community. Uh-huh. There's an aspect of joy that is part of Jewish um, tradition and worship. Well, uh, thank you, sir, for the call. Uh, clarifying and interesting, and on to another. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening. Um, thank you for a fabulous discussion. Um, I'm essentially a person who was born Jewish and became a Jew boo, Jewish Buddhist, and until I found the International Kabbalah Center. And I'm I'm just disturbed by all the lashanara or the the disrespectful speech about. Um, Rav Berg's Kabbalah Center. Now, I agree that there is a huge amount of New Age-ism, which I find repelling um, in, in that context, but I don't think that this discussion would be taking place were it not for the um, International Kabbalah Center, which has popularized it, Kabbalah. And people can get a very deep understanding if one wants to to the center and I'm wondering what you gentlemen think about the um, translation of the Zohar that comes out of the center well um, I don't know anything about the International Kabbalah Center it's this fellow Berg who is the central figure I gather Philip Berg, Rob Philip Berg um, well www.kabbalah.com yeah. um, well let's get some response I think Arthur Green is eager to respond I'm sure you must have a thought. I've never been to a Kabbalah center, so I can't tell you exactly what happens there or what is taught there. The translation of the Zohar by um, by uh, Rabbi Berg is an English adaptation of an existing Hebrew translation by Rabbi Ashlag right. that was done in the 1930s and 40s. So the Matt translation and the Berg translation are very different enterprises. I would say Matt's is a work of original scholarship going back to the Aramaic manuscripts and so on, whereas Berg's is a translation based on a Hebrew translation that existed. So they are quite different, uh, those, two, those two works. Mm -hmm. This conversation is going on because Matt and I have been involved in the study of Kabbalah for uh, something like uh, 30 or 40 years, and that study really has nothing to do with the, um, with the Kabbalah Center and what's happening there. So they are two separate streams that have some correspondence to one another in terms of the age which they're addressing, but I would say the language, tone, and content are significantly different. Yes, they are. Ma'am, we thank you for the call, and we'll go directly to another. Good evening. You're on the air. Uh, good evening. Why has Judaism never tried to evangelize or convert others to our faith? Well, is it true that Judaism never 
as evangelized? There was a short period in the Hasmonean era when we did a few forcible conversions, but uh, Judaism essentially uh, holds that uh, there are many paths to the one God, and uh, the Jewish faith is a unique uh, experience born of family and nationhood, but uh, Muslims and uh, Christians are in covenant uh, with the one God, and they pray to the same God, uh, and they have relationship with that God, and we don't have a theory of uh, salvation uh, so that many others will find their path. Oh, um, yeah. Can I say something about the Passion Play? Yes, ma'am. Oh, you know, uh, before the Holocaust, um, as I understand that there was a Passion Play in Ober, whatever it is. Oberammergau Ober in Germany. And well, there, there have been thousands of Passion Plays throughout uh, the long history of Christian Europe. That's not... Oberammergau just became a very well-known one and was backed strongly by the Nazis as a sort of a tourist attraction during the brief run of Nazism in Germany. And it really drove people wild, you know, to the point where it had something to do with the Holocaust. It may well have done so. It was a very overtly anti-Jewish version of the Passion. We thank you for the call, ma'am. Thank, thank you. Glad to have heard from you. 591-7200. Good evening. Hi, I just have one question for your guest. Just, I was curious what they thought about the Tanya, what they had to say about it. And I'll get off. Well, uh, the Tanya is clearly uh, one of the most original and important of uh, Jewish mystical works in the past two centuries, and we now enjoy one of the finest commentaries and translations of that commentary from the great master Rabbi Adin Steinsatz. Well, say a bit more about what is the Tanya? The Tanya is uh, a religious, uh, mystical, uh, Hasidic work written by Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Uh, Rabbi Schneir Zalman wrote it initially as a series of letters uh, or epistles uh, to what he calls Anshe Shlomenu, uh, people of his small uh, inner circle. And essentially what the Tanya does uh, is it takes a series of classic rabbinic uh, works as well as uh, the Zohar itself uh, and uh, it weaves them into a set of essays to address a fundamental question of uh, the average person. Uh, it is a book not so much interested in the wicked person and not so much interested in the tzaddik, the righteous person, but in the capacity of the average human being, you and me, uh, the benoni, uh, to uh, rise uh, ever and ever higher. Uh, the Tanya places, uh, following Luriana Kabbalah, places profound emphasis on the performance of mitzvot as a way of uh, re bringing redemption. Got a very simple question for all three of you as we end. It's simply this. What do you know about life and truth, and for that matter, the eternal, that you didn't know before you read the Zohar? Let me just uh, respond with one of my favorite passages in the Zohar, which is uh, the Zohar's interpretation of the Garden of Eden story. It's very clear in Genesis that, of course, that God expels Adam from the garden. But the Zohar asks, who expelled whom? Did God expel Adam or not? And that pregnant word not there uh, really is taken by the Zohar to mean that we threw God out of the garden. Maybe we're still in the garden, but we don't realize it because we've lost touch with the divine. We've banished God from our lives. So I think one of the beautiful challenges of the Kabbalah is to welcome God back into our life. There's only a minute left. What I've learned from the Zohar... 
the endless way of opening text that the text can the text of the bible can be opened up and you can discover endless interpretations and depths treasures within it what i learned from the zohar is that one can have a profound effect upon the holy one's very self for on the self um, our guests tonight have been rabbi yahil pupko um, and who is Judaic scholar at the Jewish Federation of Chicago, Arthur Green, who is professor of Jewish thought at Brandeis University, and Daniel C. Matt, who is the translator and annotator of the book that we've made much reference to tonight, that is the translation uh, of the Zohar in the Pritzker edition, just recently published, the first two volumes published, and many more to come, by Stanford University Press. Uh, a few quick words about programs to come. Tomorrow night, we're going to talk with two science writers about what's hot on the frontiers of biological science and physical science and uh, yet other areas. Thursday, as I said earlier, we'll be dealing with religion again. This is sort of a religion week as we look at the history of innovation and radicalism, in quotes at least, in American uh, Christian worship. Friday night, we're going to examine the state of television with Phil Rosenthal of the Sun-Times and at least one other guest, I might have said the low state of television. And I will be pressing the question of why is it indeed as low as it, has, as it is? Why is it wallowing in those doldrums and getting more base just about every night? Uh, lots of people will disagree with me, possibly including my guests uh, on Friday night. Um, and with that, we come to the end of the available time with thanks again to our guests uh, during this memorable conversation tonight. I will remember it for a long time, and I'll go back to reading the Zohar. Until tomorrow at 9, thanks to all for listening, and a cordial good night.